For now, if you do have, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8 in just a few moments. But, um, you know, a lot of times I consider myself to have kind of be stuck in two generations. I, I find, find myself at, at times looking towards the older generation when it comes to especially the church um, and admiring and embracing many of the uh, traditions uh, and things that are have been significant in the older generation. But then I also find myself at times reaching or looking backwards or into the backwards, forwards, I don't know which direction that should be, but to the younger generation that's coming behind me, many of whom at some point I was a youth pastor over, they're now grown up and have families and they're they're engaged in ministry in and, and, and some different ways. And I find myself kind of with a foot in both areas. So I'm, I'm almost at times divided um, and understanding kind of both perspectives and trying to bridge, bridge that gap. But not only in, a, in that way do I find myself in the in-betweens. I feel like just culturally speaking that, and maybe you will feel the same way about your own generation, but my generation, culturally speaking, kind of stands uh, in between a major shift in our culture. Uh, it's continuing to shift and shifts all the time, but growing up, um, things seemed pretty simple, but about the time I graduated high school is when, you know, the internet began to be a big deal and things began to move faster even in the country. And, uh, and and change started happening faster because the world became a smaller place. But I also feel like one of the things that took place there, not that it wasn't true before, but it was magnified in a great way, was this, especially in our culture in America, is this ideal of instant gratification. Um, you know, when my generation was graduating high school, we felt like when we graduated high school, we were supposed to immediately have what our parents worked 30 and 40 years to have. You know what I'm talking about? You parents know, don't you? And, and, and that's kind of where, where I came from. I, I mean, I felt the same way. I didn't understand why I didn't have it all made immediately. That's, you know, we miss the reality sometimes of, of working. We, we were brought up in this transitional of instant gratification. We want it and we want it now. And that's, again, that's an an issue of sinfulness that's been around since sin entered the world. But at least in our context, in my context, it seems to be uh, an increasing thing uh, with the way things are going in the world. But we're often defined by that. Get what we want and get it as fast as we can, whatever that may be. And so often, that is the thing that drives our hearts. Now, you can apply that in whatever area of your life you want to, but often what drives our heart is getting what we want and getting it as fast as we can get it. Self-gratification, instant gratification. Well, it's to this issue, or at least in this issue in one area, that Paul turns our attention in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before we get there... I want to remind you of where we've been and how we how Paul has brought us to this particular text because he's getting ready to turn the page, so to speak, and to get into some specifics about certain areas of the the life of a Christian in the church in Thessalonica and ultimately in our lives as well. But if you remember last week, we spoke a little bit about sanctification 
And it's on that issue that we will now continue this morning and even in the weeks to come. But but Paul had revealed to us in in chapter 3 his great concern for the Thessalonians' ability to stand up underneath the pressures, the trials that were coming their way because of the word of God. Something that was happening uh, as a result of their sanctification. Difficulties were rising. And, and if you remember, his desire was to see them established in the faith and knowing that God would guarantee the establishment of their hearts, blameless and holiness, through the trials uh, as they experienced them. Now understand that holiness is the aim. That's the goal. And if you remember, or if you weren't here, the, the, the word holiness, or when we say holiness, it's the same word when we say sanctification. Sanctification simply means being made holy. Now, but the question is, what exactly does that mean? We talk about that, right? We've got to be holy. We, we typically assume that means moral uprightness in a social sense when we speak about holiness. But what, what is the Bible speaking of when it speaks of holiness? Well, we can really look at that from two different perspectives. And, and Paul's going to focus on one, but let's make sure we get this right. You see... Holiness, something happens at the moment of salvation concerning holiness. Holiness, again, meaning sanctification. That is, when a person repents of their sin and trusts Christ as their Savior and they are born again, the Bible teaches us that they are immediately or positionally sanctified. That's something that happens in a moment. And that simply means they are made holy in a particular sense. That is, they are set apart for a particular purpose. So, when you were saved, if you are saved, at the moment you were saved, God set you apart for his purpose. So you were, in one sense, made holy or sanctified. But holiness doesn't only mean that. It means something else as well. Because there's positional holiness or sanctification and there's what we call progressive, something that happens over time. And this is something that we want to know about because this is what's going on in our lives as believers. Because God sets you apart for a particular purpose at salvation. And that purpose is to now be made holy. So in process, you are being sanctified. You are being made holy in a progressive sense. And it's ever happening. And, but understand this, the goal... The aim of our lives, our pursuit, our passion should be focused on holiness. You see, that's, that's a little bit different than the way most of us are wired. I don't know about you, but uh, I can take off my jacket and show you, but I have this streak that runs right up the center of my back, and it is wild. It, it is rebellious. Ask my wife. <laughs> if it wasn't for my wife, there's no telling where I would be. Uh, she, she's grounded me in many ways. But, but we, we tend to focus, uh, even as Christians, on what can we get away with. Everybody got quiet there. <laughs> what, what, what can I do or what can't I do? Tell me you know, the bottom line. And, and our focus is how far can we go how fast? That's, that's the way most of us or many of us are wired. We, we want to push things as far as we can push them and still be okay. And see, the reason we're that way is because of our sinfulness. You see, you, you see what's at the center there? What can I do? What can I get away with? How far can I go? What's at the center there is me and, and what I want to pursue. But here's the thing. What's indicative of the Christian life, the transformation that happens within us, 
Not that that gets wiped out immediately because it doesn't, but that there's a shift that takes place. And the shift happens here from me being at the center and the focus to what I can do and what I can get away with to how I can please God. How I can pursue, we can put it in many terms, how I can pursue the title of message more than pursue the pleasure of God. Or some people would simply say how we can pursue the glory of God. We use these big fancy words. But the bottom line is it's putting God at the very center of everything we do. Instead of asking what can I get away with? How far can I go? Asking the question is how can I honor and glorify my great God? Now that's, that's what's happening in our lives as believers. Every person who has been saved. Paul's already established this for us. This is happening to you. Uh, you're progressing in this. Yeah, you're still struggling with that rebel in you, that how far can I go, how fast. Some of us, uh, some of you are doing better than others of us on the issue, but we're, we are being moved in the direction of holiness. Our di- desires, our passions are changing. And, and it's not changing because we're making it happen. It's changing because that's what happens when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a believer. When, the, when, when, when you're saved, the Bible uh, says it in Ezekiel this way. God removes the, the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And, and he goes on in that same passage in Ezekiel 34 to say that so that he's doing that. He's removing the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh so that... You will obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and, and Ezekiel makes no bones about it. He says this is what's going to happen. This is what happens in our lives as believers. Which raises a lot of questions for a lot of us. Because some of us at least appear at times to have no concern about our passion for God's glory. Or any concern about our struggle in rebellion. See the issue isn't whether or not you're a rebel. Because your pastor's one. So if it's an issue, we've got a big problem. The issue is, does that concern you? Is that something that you're struggling through in progress of your sanctification? This is what happens in the life of all who have been transformed. It's not just some. It happens in everyone's life who God has saved by his marvelous grace. Now, I'm laboring over this doctrinal issue for an important reason. Because careless communication or or being careless about this issue of being made holy or sanctification, it it leads to some some significant distortions or some misunderstandings about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have been saved. Because what happens is a lot of times, at least, and it's mostly our fault, is what we portray, and maybe sometimes in the church what we believe, is that... Holiness is all about, or our salvation is all about moral uprightness. You know, dotting your I's and crossing your T's at every, at every point. And so the people who do better in social morality are somehow more godly. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't reveal something, but those are not the same thing. Being a Christian and the issues of where we are on the moral scale are not the same things because salvation is by grace through faith alone plus nothing. It's not about how cleaned up our lives are made in preparation for God. You see, and so the distortion when we talk about sanctification is that if we take 
what is happening in sanctification and we misunderstand its context, we often portray to the lost world out there that being a Christian is about morality. It's about how good you are. And that's why the world around us looks at churches and go, bunch of hypocrites. Because they think that being a Christian means you're supposed to be better morally. And that's what defines us as Christians. Now, should there be a difference? Well, yes. I'm not saying there isn't. But that is not what defines the difference between being a lost person and being a saved person. And the next time somebody looks at you and says that I don't want to go to church because it's just it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Your answer should be you're absolutely right. We're all hypocrites. The difference should be is that we know it and we're not okay with that. You follow me? Because we are hypocrites. The issue is not us being more moral than them. The issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We don't have to make them more moral. God will do a work in them if we preach the gospel. Now, I'm saying all that because what Paul now shifts to is some particular issues of sanctification. That is, issues that rest within the life of those who have believed. He's not talking to unbelievers. Okay, matter of fact, he's going to make a distinction in this passage. So, because we are limited in our time, let's read the text and then let's walk through it uh, in efficient, as efficiently as we can. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray as we seek God to reveal something or what he wants us to see in this passage. Father, we do ask this morning that you will enlighten our hearts as we look over the next few moments at these eight verses. Um, so, Father, it is not our desire that we just come to some conclusion. It's our desire that, that our, our thoughts, our, our, our attitudes, everything about us would be directed towards what you are seeking to communicate to us through your word here. And so, God, I pray that you would take this partic- these particular issues and you would... Uh, Press them in upon our hearts in a way that is necessary where we find ourselves today. Because we're all in different places in the, in the progress of sanctification. And so, God, I pray that you would press them in our hearts. That you would convict us of our sin and compel us to, to walk in repentance. To pursue your glory above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Paul makes his transition... From where he's been in the first three chapters, he begins in in chapter 4 by saying, finally. 
Now, that's one of those words that can be a little bit deceptive because Paul is not necessarily saying, and the last thing, because he's going to go on and talk about several other issues particular to the community of believers there in Thessalonica. The finally simply means he's now moving from what we would call kind of foundational issues, undergirding stuff, a little more abstract, to some now very practical things. So he's, he's laid the groundwork, talking about having established hearts and faith underneath the trials, talking about God establishing our hearts blameless in holiness. And so now, based on this stuff, now let me tell you how the rubber meets the road in some particular areas. Now, he doesn't deal with everything he could possibly deal with. He deals with a, a few particular issues that were most likely you know, significant to this body of believers in this particular time. We can't necessarily recreate and understand you know, why Paul chose to speak, especially in these eight verses, on this subject. Uh, was it a problem? What, what was going on? We can't necessarily reconstruct it, but we don't need to. It's, it's the word of God even for us today. And so we just need to, to allow God's word to speak. So finally, let me, Paul is saying, now give you some specifics concerning what is going to be taking place in the process of sanctification in your life as a believer. And then the, the very next statement, he says, I want to ask and urge you. Now, depending on the translation you got, they, they, they say that in a few different ways. But understand this. Paul is not saying he's getting ready to, to ask them to do him a favor. He's not uh, going to just, you know, I, I, really, I really want to encourage you guys to, to do this. No, the terms ask and urge, they're put together. Really, the, the term urge would be exhort, which means a form of command. So Paul is, is basically making a very emphatic statement here. So when he's saying, I'm asking and urging, he's, he's begging them and exhorting them because of the significance of the issue. So it's not a light thing. It's not Paul saying, now church, I really hope that you'll, you'll listen to me here. And that you might consider uh, uh, these, these uh, ideas that I have. No, that's not what Paul's saying. In fact, he's going to be very clear about these ideas that he has. Uh, they are going to be commands from the Lord himself. And, and, so the, and then he, he sets it up with one final phrase. He's going to ask and exhort them in the Lord. This is not originating with Paul. This is not Paul's uh, uh, schematic to have a successful church. This is not something that, that Paul just wants to get people to do what he says. The attitude from which he is now providing this uh, uh, exhortation to them arises from his heart, his passion, his love for the glory of God. So, finally, let's talk about some practical things. And let me tell you, pay attention. This is significant. I ask and urge you, he says, but I'm doing so in the Lord. This is a matter that I'm speaking to you on because I love the glory of God. That's what Paul's saying here. And then he moves into, I'm breaking it into two particular things. First thing he's going to talk about, or generally speaking, is that we pursue excellence. And the second thing he's going to labor over is to exercise purity. So let's move through those, uh, highlighting some of the significant issues that Paul brings out to us. So first, he begins, after his little transition, I ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, and then he moves to the context, that as you receive from us, and here's the key phrase, how you ought to walk and to please God. 
Just as you are doing that you do so more and more. So the two emphasis here is that he's speaking about a how, a means, how you're going to do something. And then he brings up this word, and in, in, in my translation it says all. Some translation may say how it is necessary. Literally, how it is necessary. So that's another issue. So how means, and then there's an imperative, it is absolutely necessary for what? To live as a Christian for the glory of God. Or as I've termed it, how to pursue the pleasure of God. This is what Paul is talking about. And then he's going to help us understand that that's going to be fulfilled ultimately by us pursuing that more and more and more and more. We're pursuing excellence. So Paul's exhortation to them is based or is about a how-to. And here's the thing. What he's going to break down for us is some specific things. In fact, he's going to give us commands, or you could call them rules, or you could call them boundaries. Things that rebels like me don't like. Don't hit me in, right? Because the moment you hit me in, I'll be bucking up against it. And that's the way we are in our sinful nature. But this is a reality that as believers, understand, this is to believers, not to non-believers. This is the life, this is how you're going to walk if you're pursuing the pleasure of God. And guess what? This is an optional this isn't me throwing out here to all you believers here in, in Thessalonica, in this context in Conway. Let me give you some options. You know, here's, here's something you can do to please God. No, it, it, it's, it's straightforward. He's saying, here's how you're going to do it. And it's absolutely necessary for you to do that. Now, there's a tension here because the, the question we ask, so if I, a Christian, don't do this, does it mean I'm not a Christian? We talked about that last week. We don't lose our salvation, but... I would argue that if the person who says, yes, I'm a Christian, but then disregards, as Paul's going to finish this section with, the commands of sanctification, it raises a question about our position in Christ. It might cast doubt upon the reality of the profession of our faith. So Paul's saying... Here's how you're going to pursue the pleasure of God if you're going to pursue that. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You're going to pursue that. It's not option. If you're not pursuing the pleasure of God, then there might be a greater problem than just moral issues. So he gives us the ability or the means, the instruments by which we're going to pursue God's pleasure. And then he's going to, and, and these are some commands. The, the very means are the commands. And then he's going to, he tells us that it is absolutely necessary that we pursue these things because this is the Christian life. We weren't saved for ourselves. God didn't save any of us to make us feel better. Sometimes we think that, right? God saved us for his glory. And his glory, what does that mean? Well, the easiest way I know to explain that is simply God's fame throughout the entirety of the universe. That's his glory. And so he saved you in order to make his name famous every place there is possible. That's the glory of God. That's why you were saved. You were saved to do your own thing, your own way, until this life is over. You weren't saved to make you feel better about What's going to happen when you die? Now, does that 
Sure, but that's not why you were saved. You were saved for the glory of God. Now, if you're not living for the glory of God, I hope that's pressing in upon your heart right now. Now, but if you are living for the glory of God, you're going, at least he's not talking about me because I love Jesus and I'm pursuing his glory. Well, don't settle for that. That's what Paul says. He says, just as you are doing, it's not enough. Do so more and more. Now, Paul is not talking about making God happy with you. He's not talking about gaining the favor of God because when we're saved, we get all of God's favor. We get all of it. We are right in his standing. We are in Christ. God is perfectly pleased with Christ. That's not what we're talking. We're not living the Christian life to make God happy with us or to get in better with God. We are living from a position of thankfulness of the, for, the, for the glory of God in our lives. And so Paul says, don't settle. Whatever you've done, whatever great things you've done for the Lord as an individual or as a church, don't live there. Don't, don't settle for that. Do so more and more. Now, one of the things we're all guilty of, and I put myself at the front of the line when I say this, and then I hear it a lot of times. I've heard it here, and I'm not trying to pick on that, but we'll talk about how things used to be 10 years ago, how wonderful it was. I can sit here and tell you just you know, reflect on fruitful ministry from 10 years ago and, 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 and just celebrate in that, and I can live there. But here's the thing. That's... Done and gone. Praise God for whatever he has done in the midst of anybody's life, any church's life throughout the years. Praise God for that. But we can't live there. We can start now and look forward and do more. Pursue passion. Pursue his glory. Or we can sit around and talk about the glory days. And die. Right? Because that's what happens. I've seen it. You probably have too. So we want to do so more and more. Now, and so there's there's the pursuit of increase in our pursuit of God's pleasure. But then Paul turns the page a little bit. And he then provides them with some particular commands. And we don't have a lot of time to unpack these. I don't think it's going to be necessary for us to get the major point across here. But what Paul tells us is he tells us that this is the will of God. Well, first, back up just a little before that. He says, for, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Again, this is on the authority of Christ. This is not Paul's ideas. This is Jesus communicating through Paul to the Thessalonians then and you and I now. These are the instructions we gave you. So Paul had given them particular commands, instructions, rules, boundaries. Call whatever you, makes you feel better. It's all the same thing. There, there are some do's and don'ts along the way in the life of sanctification. And so Paul says, we gave those to you and you know based on the authority of Christ. And he says, for, and this means he's getting ready to explain everything he just said about the commands that he passed on to them. For this is the will of God. And this is the will of God for every person who names the name of Christ. And the will of God, he says right here, is equivalent to your sanctification. And what that simply means is that God's purposing in your life that you be made more holy. And he's going to do that in process through a means. Now, here's the tension I brought up earlier. 
God guarantees that every person who's saved will be fully sanctified and glorified at the day of Christ. That's not in doubt. That's not in question. If you're a born-again believer, if you've been saved, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Christ, you're guaranteed that. You will be glorified. Full and final salvation. Okay? No doubts about it. But then we come back into the human aspects and we go, so that means if I don't do anything, it's still going to happen. And I say, well, you can talk about it that way if you want to. I'm not going to undermine what God has promised us because he's promised it to us. But he promised it to us through means. You understand that? It's going to happen through some things going on in your life, in my life, in real time. So stuff's going to happen in our lives. And, and sometimes it can be hard. Sometimes it can be easier. But it's going to be the means of God sanctifying you, making you holy, bringing you to the point of your full and final salvation. And so here's a few of those commands that Paul offers to the believers to guide them through their sanctification. And so here's the question. Does he give us three things or does he give us one thing that he then unpacks in two ways? There's a lot of debate over this passage and, and you may debate. We're going to take this answer B. One overarching idea that's been unpacked in two particular ways. One focused on me and one me focusing on the other. So he says, abstain from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, a lot of different things to a lot of different people, doesn't it? Especially in our culture today. Things are changing so much and it's, you know, people are saying, well, this is okay, that's not okay. But here's the bottom line. I'll stand where... Christians have stood for centuries, and that is this. Sexual immorality is defined by anyone seeking to satisfy their personal desires in, in a way that's outside the design of God. That's pretty broad, isn't it? But it's pretty clear. So then you have to question, well, what's God's design? Well, again, I stand with history. I stand with the word, and that is that God designed a beautiful relationship between a man and a woman for life. And it's through that means that he was going to magnify his glory. Okay, that's his design. So anything that doesn't fit in that is defined, you can define as sexual immorality. That includes the hot cultural topics of the day. That includes other issues that have been you know, pushed under the rug, premarital sex, sex outside of marriage between adults. And guess what? You might give me for that. That is no less sin than homosexuality. Follow me. Because the church wants to, to pound on the, the common, the current cultural issues of homosexuality as we should stand against that as sin. But folks... Their sin is no more grievous than heterosexuals conducting themselves in ways outside of God's design. Follow that. Swallow that. And I say that because we're human beings, aren't we? And you know, we go, well, you know, so-and-so over here, they're, they're living uh, outside of uh, God's design together. This, this guy and this girl, we go, that ah, happens, right? That's just the way our culture is. And then somebody says something about homosexuality, we go, oh, and I go, how dare we respond towards one sin and not respond towards any? Because here's the issue. Our issue is not trying to increase morality. 
Our issue is glorifying God. So our concern is for those who profess the name of Christ. Remember where we are in context? Christians. To live that out in a particular way. And Paul says that way by command is abstaining from sexual immorality. Broad definition. And then he breaks it down. And he goes on to say that each of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Now, again, this is a debated statement. I'm not going into all the issues that can arise here. I'm simply going to present it this way. The, the word tells us that when we're concerning this issue of sexual morality, there's a view about ourselves. We need to focus on ourselves. It says that each one of you, yourselves, literally, so there's emphatic about you. Look at you. Don't look at the people around you. Look at me. You know how to conduct yourself in a way that's in keeping with God's design. That's the command. You're expected to do that as a believer. Don't expect the world to follow that. Don't put all that on them. Okay? They're unbelievers. We don't win them to the Lord by trying to straighten out the morality. We preach Jesus. And then within the fold of the body, we say to you, live the life that is in accordance with the profession that you make. And we plead and we urge because we know it's the means that God will sanctify people. And for those who profess Christ who are struggling in these areas, and it's probably everybody at some point, we pray for them, we love them, we, we, we encourage, we exhort them to do right, to continue repenting. Right? We hold them accountable to the profession that they make. We don't go, ah, it's okay, it's no big deal, everybody's doing it. No, we say, God saved you for his glory. And this is how he's magnifying your life, by you abstaining from that and living in a way that magnifies him. So consider yourself. But then he deals with the converse. And he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So look at yourself and your own conduct concerning this matter. But then be concerned about others. And the point here is not keeping them straight. It's the point about how you are encouraging them in any way to live a holy life. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. Don't that would ever encourage something other than faithfulness to God's holiness. And it's broad. And it can be applied in so many different ways in our circumstances and situations. From, from young people to old people. From single people to married people. There's application here for all of us. We have a concern about ourselves in this area. And we have a concern for others. Now, But notice right in between those two. What Paul says, he says, when he said control your own body in holiness, he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this is it. People who live outside of the design of God and persist in that way are living in a way that people who do not know God live. Did you follow that? I'm not saying that I can look at anybody and say that person's saved and that person's not saved. But I can look at a life and go, that person is living in a way that the Bible says that people who don't know God live. And that's not okay if you say, I love Jesus. We're to live pursuing his pleasure. If our attitude is not that then we need to be concerned about our position before God. Paul closes with some warnings. 
He says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now that warning is not specifically to be applied to a Christian. Because as Christians, we have no fear. We will stand before God and we are justified, right? The warning here is for those amongst the community who profess faith, who live a life or pursue something other than God's holiness, pursuing something other than God's pleasure, and they're living the life that looks like the Gentiles who don't know God. That's the one that Paul's speaking to because the Lord is the avenger. I don't have to find it out. I don't have to get on to you. Your brothers and sisters don't have to get on you because God knows. And he knows the difference between pursuing his holiness and pursuing your self-satisfaction and redefining holiness. So he says, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is significant. You need to know this. This is no joke. And folks, I would just say, in, in American church, this is what this needs to be said. Our churches are filled with a lot of people who probably don't know Jesus. They know the culture. They, they know the, the, the Christianese. They were raised up in it. But the bottom line is their hearts have never been changed. They don't, they don't pursue the pleasure of God. They're pursuing the pleasure of self. And they probably likely know that they're probably in some trouble. If not, I pray God would convict us and reveal that to us. So the Lord is the avenger in his all. He says, why? Because God has not called us for impurity. He has not called us to pursue our own satisfaction. He has not called us to, to, to get whatever we want as fast as we can. He's called us in holiness. That's his goal. That's what his purpose. That's what he set you aside for at salvation. To be holy. And to pursue anything less is to disregard God and his word. Paul says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And notice what Paul does there. You're disregarding God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, what that implies is that if you have the Spirit of God who is holy, that the result will be a transformed life pursuing holiness. And if our lives are not pursuing holiness, then maybe it's because we don't have the Holy Spirit. Because that's what he does. He doesn't do it in one Christian and not in another. He doesn't change. He deals with us in different timetables. But nevertheless, he does. So here's the thing. Sanctification comes by means of rules. I don't like that word either. <laughs> rules. There are guidelines. Now, sometimes we create a whole lot more than there are. Don't misunderstand me. But sometimes we go the other direction. We just kind of say, well, we're saved by grace, so we're in. What does it matter? Well, it does, because these commands are the means that God is sanctifying you and I. As we read his word and we go, oh, man, that stinks, but I'm going to bow to it. Right? It doesn't mean that we, we feel good about it. We're still dealing with sinful flesh. And if you, if you don't ever struggle with what God's word commands upon you, I'd say you're a liar. Because our, our, our rebels in us are struggling. But here's the difference. We don't go, I don't like that. I'm going to change it. We go, I don't like that. But God, change me. Help me to bow to your word and let your word determine 
progress of my sanctification and not me and my I know better than God attitude. So I don't know where you are today. The biggest issue here is not whether or not you are struggling in the areas of sexual morality. That may be an issue. But the bigger issue here is what something like that says about you and your relationship with God in the pursuit of his pleasure. Are you pursuing the pleasure of God? Does that matter to you? Or is that just another maybe good idea or not so good idea? Where's the passion of your heart? That's where our concern should be. Because if the pleasure of God is not our pursuit, it's not our passion, then we need to fall before God and beg Him to change our hearts. And that may mean for somebody here today that you need to initially be changed. You need to repent of your sin, sinfulness and trust in the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the only way. He has come. He has died for the sins of the world and that all who repent and believe in Him will be changed. That may be where you are today, but if you're a Christian, it doesn't really change. You still might need to repent and pray that God will continue changing you. This is the means by which you will reach the ultimate destination. Because the ultimate des- destination is all about God's glory. <laughs> so we're not you know, all that keen on God's glory now. You're probably not going to be that keen about it when that day comes. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Sometimes the word is hard for us to swallow. It rubs against us the wrong way, and especially in the culture in which we live today. Uh, and anything goes kind of culture. This particular text just doesn't go with the flow. And it's so easy for us, Lord, living in this world to be affected by the thinking of this world. And so that may make this word rub against us even more. May God, I pray for everyone who's here today that we would not be captive to the world's way of thinking. That the world would not determine our view of holiness, but rather that your word would. And Lord, there's not a one of us here that fits the bill, and I know that. We're all sinners. But Lord, I pray we'd never use that as an excuse to continue in our sins. But Lord, that our attitude would be to pray and ask and beg for you to continually change our hearts and to change our minds about our sin. And to give us the power and the desire to live above sin, to live victorious, because that's what you've saved us for. So Lord, I pray that as a people who declare that we are in Christ, and therefore we are declaring that we want to magnify the name of Jesus, I pray that the message that we are magnifying is the message that you've given us to magnify. Father, deal with the hearts of your people today. Convict our hearts of our sin and compel us to run to the cross in pursuit of your majesty and your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.